can't just be one person in their singular relationships. People have to look to how they change their systems. But I think also every day we can think of the singular actions we can take to improve the lives of people we're in relationship with and to change those systems. If you're a white person or have benefited from proximity to whiteness, this episode is for you. If you've ever wrestled with how to speak up or push back when you see people getting hurt, this episode is also for you. Now, silence is not golden in the face of injustice. Silence in the face of injustice says you're complicit to the harm you witness. And I suspect there's many of you listening who deeply want to step off the sidelines and figure out how you can engage in substantive conversations about race, discrimination, and bias. And I suspect you want to be a part of cultivating more conversations and connections that support all people being treated equally. Great. Me too. Yet conversations about race or harm done to any people find whatever insecurities and fears and doubts and shame lingering in your nervous system. And these fears and doubts become a beacon to the work you need to do to have the capacity to speak up to harm instead of staying silent. And for those of you who hold advantages and privileges like myself, if we don't speak up, we become a part of the problem. And courage is also a powerful contagion and catalyst for community. Courage cannot exist without a healthy dose of fear. So it's important to do the work to move through these fears out of silence and into taking action against harm being done. I'm Rebecca Chang, and you're listening to The Unburdened Leader, the show that goes deep with leaders whose burdens have inspired their life's work. Our goal is to learn how they've addressed these burdens, how they rise from them, and become better and more impactful leaders of themselves and others. When you choose to step into a conversation about racism, you risk giving up your comfort and the illusion of control in how you're seen. In essence, when you choose to speak up against injustice, you're choosing discomfort. You can have all the right words to say, but then this feeling of shutdown happens because your body wants comfort while your mind wants to do the right thing. Talking about race is inviting discomfort, and inviting discomfort is an affront to all the ways that you protect yourself from harm. These conversations about race and other forms of harm we witness require a lot of practice, what Resma Menachem calls reps. We have to do our reps to increase our capacity for discomfort. There is no grand sweeping heroic gesture that needs to be done. Just day in and day out practice and presence while engaging in hard conversations. While we're seeing more and more people demonize discomfort, like it's a bad thing to be uncomfortable, I know you're here for the awkward and important work to move through your discomfort so you can speak up and speak out when you see or experience wrongdoing. Sure, speaking up can lead to awkward rambles, words not coming out just right, or feeling shut down. But when you befriend your discomfort instead of letting it shut you down, you can navigate the vulnerability of being misunderstood and those super awkward rambles. And speaking up means you'll need to redefine your relationship with perfectionism too. Because speaking up means you'll mess up, say the wrong things, and sometimes feel and look like a bumbling mess. (laughs) But the rambling and awkward feelings decrease when you move from trying to look the part of a good ally and move to doing the inner work to truly embody what it feels like to stand in your power. This is a daily practice and not something you just arrive at. I know the awkward and vulnerable feelings around these conversations all too well. And my guess is you do too, when you feel the words bubbling up to speak up and then you end up staying silent after overthinking your words. Or my go-to is a rambling mess of words that are hard for others to follow. My head and heart are in the right place, But when I'm not grounded in my body and anchored in my values, it can slow down and dilute the conversations I really want to have with people. And the polarities that come up around wanting to say the right thing, but not be performative or not wanting to center yourself, but be authentic and true are real and can also shut you down. Now, sure, sometimes it's best to just stay quiet and listen. Sure, Taking the time to pause and not just react is important, especially in today's hyper-responsive world. 
but indefinite silence is never okay when harm is being done. Over-editing your words and choosing silence instead of speaking up in response to wrongdoing is rarely the better choice. Staying silent signals you're in agreement with what happened, even if it's not true. And our silence doesn't really keep us safe because we are hurt when the dignity of others are hurt. And in the guise of protecting, our silence ends up harming. Self-leadership helps you lead yourself with more confidence and clarity through the vulnerable and awkward moments. And collective efforts are always better than individual ones. There's safety in numbers. You have people to bounce things off and strategize with, and you can share your courage with each other. We can best advocate when we have community, clarity, and a plan. And that's why I'm so excited to talk about today's Unburdened Leader guest. She literally wrote a book on how to talk about race to your boss, and that's practical, actionable, and really, really helpful. Yvonne Hutchison is the author of How to Talk to Your Boss About Race, Speaking Up Without Getting Shut Down. And she's also the CEO of Ready, Set, a diversity and inclusion training firm that helps tech giants, political leaders, media outlets, and Fortune 500 companies speak more productively about racism and turn talk into action. To date, Ready Set has worked with hundreds of companies around the world to build, manage, and grow diverse teams. Now, in her former life, prior to founding Ready Set, she worked as an international labor and human rights lawyer for nearly a decade. Now, pay attention to what Yvonne shared about identity and social location and how these impact speaking up around race. Listen for why it's important to specifically discuss racism and the power of an intersectional lens on change. And notice how she identifies the value of both individual and collective work in this area that supports systemic changes. Now, please welcome Yvonne Hutchinson to the Unburdened Leader podcast. Yvonne, thank you for joining me on the Unburdened Leader. Well, thank you for having me super excited about our conversation. I am too. I want to start our conversation by talking about your very first job. Your first job was at a famous theme park. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit about how the application process and the eventual job you were assigned, how did that impact you and how you viewed yourself? I'll start by saying a little bit about the process and then I'll tell you about the impact. Yeah, it was a cattle call in a lot of ways for kids to work during the summer. Um, The youngest you could be was 15, which that was how old I was. I was in Texas. And um, uh, yeah, you know, they kind of brought you in, had you fill out this form, had you talk to some people and it had you prioritize, remember like where you wanted to work and you could work in food service, you could work in costume as a park character, you could work taking tickets at the booth and then information, and then you could sort of work in janitorial services. No shade of janitors, but in this particular context, um, as a teenage girl, like I didn't really want to work in janitorial services because it was um, one of the hardest uh, roles because you were on your feet all day, so you never sat down. So I think, you know, I was disappointed when I found out what, where I was going to be working, you know, I have what, I just was all set to like have my working in a theme park summer experience. And then, and you know, there was something a little bit like, I don't know how to put this, but it was like, kind of like, this is your place. You know what I mean? Like you, like I felt, and I often felt this way growing up in Texas, that as a black person, I was expected to occupy a certain position in society and in relationship to white people, I think is the most important way to uh, say that. So, so I felt that there, it was hard work. It was hot. I, you know, I didn't know. I also felt this quite a lot in Texas. I didn't know what the difference between me and the white kids who did well was. And I was always taught in some ways by my family, but more so by the white people around me to not see color, whatever it is, it's not about your race. Was what I, how I was taught to think. When in fact, it was like the opposite of the truth. That was a lie. The opposite of a truth is a lie. That was a lie. Um, uh, but it made those people feel good about the position they put me in. And it made me unable to articulate the wrongness of what was happening when it happened. 
but yeah, that's how my experience was. And it was like terrible. I will say it was also just disgusting. Like condoms in bushes, like <laughs> things in the bathroom. Nobody should ever have to clean up. That was like, that was my job. That was a team. And you wrote in your book that you actually had to take an assessment. There was a pretty thorough assessment like that you took and you aced it. Right. You I said, thought like, I did. Yeah, and, and then, and then yeah. get, <laughs> yeah, but there was also something you said about this job that you realized that other folks that were assigned yeah. janitorial looked like you. That's what I'm saying is like the myths that I was taught as a, as a kid, it took me a long time to undo that idea of how society works. So I took it personal, you know, just to sort of tie this to a political moment we're in right now. Got when it. we think about like banning books and like the stories that we censor and the, the histories that we allow our kids to learn, as somebody who grew up in a time where um, these stories, these histories, these explanations were never acknowledged, right? Because they were uncomfortable truths and inconvenient truths. I didn't have the tools with which to articulate what was happening and to say why it was wrong and to extrapolate from it being like, oh, this is something wrong with me. This is a personal thing too. This is a systemic thing and there's something wrong with these people, right? Now, in retrospect, who knows, you know, 25 years later, who knows what, it, who knows what it was. Um, and certainly nobody's like held accountable for that. And there's just always that little seed of doubt. And when you're young, those seeds of doubt can grow to be quite powerful, you know, that that's just planted within you. Thank you. Thank you for unpacking that some more because the, hearing even just the, the burdens of not having the language, but knowing something was off. And that is such a common way that our brains work is when we're feeling kind of out of sorts with something, we usually turn on ourselves and say, yeah, I must have right. done something wrong. And yeah. then, then that, like you said, that burden can grow, that seed can grow and manifest. And, and so how, so I want to then shift to later on when you took your first job entering the workforce yeah. and you wrote, I saw my career as the culmination of all my hard work, the manifestation of my black excellence. It was in truth, yeah. the beginning of my failure. So can you tell us more about this revelation? So I, just a little bit about my background. I was very studious in high school. I was also in all of the things. We had a choir department that was really competitive. I cannot sing. I joined choir. I was really, really into drama. We had a very good drama department. I spent a lot of time in theater. I did um, speech and debates. Uh, one, I was third in the nation and not like this is like, I don't live in this past. I'm just telling you this, tell you how by the book I was. Right. You know, so had got that championship. And then, you know, at the same time, I was like, you know, in the honors classes and just trying to do everything everybody told me I needed to do to get to a good school, get a good scholarship, et cetera. And I did it right. I, you know, studied drama at Carnegie Mellon, graduated. I remember I was walking down the, the graduation aisle and like there were just so many medals on my neck because I did so many extracurricular activities. And everybody was like, my mom, like, you look ridiculous. And I had like so many ribbons in my hat. I just wanted to have my hands at everything. And because I was also interested in everything, but also because I was like, I'm going, I have to excel. I have to do great because if I do great here, I'm going to do great in life. Right. And then you know, I took a year off. I worked as a temp in New York and had that moment. And then I mm. went to law school and, you know, it, my acceptance to law school wasn't easy, but, you know, I, and I used to be ashamed to admit this, but like, I, I, you know, I was admitted off the wait list to Harvard. I'm no longer ashamed of it. It's like, the wait list for Harvard's great, right? <laughs> right? But like, I got into Harvard and I thought, okay, like I've done it. There's no more school. I'm at the best school. So like, it's going to be like just a cakewalk from here. All I got to do is like, keep doing good, show up. Everybody's going to know I'm good. Like it's dope, right? I had a little bit of a hard time finding a job out of Harvard. It should, probably should have been my first clue. And it should, I should also say that this is not every Black lawyer's story. I think for me, I was also a non-traditional lawyer. So it was harder to, to place me. Um, what do you mean by that? What's, that? what's a non-traditional well, lawyer? Well, so I didn't go into a firm. I wasn't interested in doing firm law and I wasn't really interested in working for a government. I wanted to work for NGO. I wanted to do international law development. Um, I did not, um, I did great in some of my like policy classes and I was very involved. I wasn't like a top of my class, right? Like there, I think are people who 
go through traditional route who are top of their classes who have easier time, an easier time than me. But there are also, you know, we know the stats on employment after law school and um, discrimination between uh, uh, black law graduates. So it's a very real thing. But for me, you know, I found a job that I was really excited about. And I was a consultant in Afghanistan. I write about this job a little bit. And I'll never forget, I, I know this feeling now as somebody who has written both academically and um, like in policy context and now with the book, there's this feeling when you do this analysis and like all of the threads come together and you feel like you've unlocked something and you for once are saying something new and different and unique and it's an insight that both feels perfectly obvious, but like one no one has had before. It's a really powerful feeling to have that as a writer, just to feel unlocked. And, you know, it happens really rarely um, to, to get that. But I remember having it for the first time. I'll never forget it. I stayed at work late. So I'm in Afghanistan, for goodness sake, in the office a couple. Well, I must have worked like eight or nine. And I'm like looking at the data and I pull this together and I'm just like, I felt it was a beautiful analysis. I knew it was a beautiful analysis, the way that I was putting the pieces together, the recommendation I was making, the picture I was painting. And I remember I stayed up late working on it and I gave it to my boss. I must have been there for like a month, maybe less this time. And I was just, you know, when you hit hands up again, your first job, you're on pins and needles, you're like, ah, I can't wait for my face. I can't wait. For my and uh, she comes back and she goes, Well, I want to, I want to talk to you about this. And I'm, ready i'm like let's talk about it girl well you want to promote me now right like i'm in it and she was like are you sure you wrote this i was like what do you she's like you know that we can't plagiarize here and i was like (sighs) so first of all fuck you i don't want to do that kind of work for you anymore but second i was like wow so i am a harvard law graduate like Harvard law graduates, like if there's one thing that you can probably presume about them is that they can do an analysis and write. And I'm not saying this to be an elitist, but that is the presumption that all of my other classmates got. And for some reason, she thought I, a person who graduated from an elite Ivy League law school, who was doing this analysis, it wasn't expected. It was actually penalized, that, that standard, right? But excelling. I wasn't, it wasn't like, oh, she's got great potential. We've got to mentor her. Let's see what resources we can get her. How did she get to this? You know, it was, did you plagiarize this? Okay, don't do it again. That, that was the feedback I got. And I think, you know, we, have, we can talk about the, the rest of my career. Second, but that became a theme, right? You're, if you don't excel, we'll let you know. But if you do excel, we're not really going to fully recognize it. And we're also not going to give you feedback either way. What are you feeling right now as you recall that? Because I, I get to see your face as you're yeah. sharing this. I mean, for me, it's like you, it is something to remember it. It's something to write about it. It's another to verbally tell the story to another person yeah. and hear how wrong it is. And yeah. also, I'm, I'm a boss now. I'm a CEO, right? So if somebody does something brilliantly, the first thing on my mind is like, how do we recognize that person at ready set we have a pride and praise channel where we like you know so and so did such a great job with x y and z and particularly if they're earlier in their career i'm always mindful that this praise is really important right like because of imposter syndrome because of that self-doubt because you don't always know what success looks like it's you hit it you gotta get and i i think like wow i, I would never do that i would never do that to a direct report I would never do that to somebody one, you know, month out of school. But what, what, how did you, you respond? Know? So when, when I was you were accused of play, I was like, so what I did you do with her, that? I said like, no, you know, I'll, what, what could I say? I said, I didn't plagiarize it. I wrote it myself. And then I kind of walked away like that. Like, what can you do there? You, you mentioned something earlier when you were talking about your college experience and you said, I did everything by the book and you followed the book. And got this job and did all the things, had the medals, had the ribbons, had the degrees from the best schools. And you, again, followed the book and had this feedback. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, so the book is different for different people. But for me, the book was written by W.E.B. Du Bois, right? And the idea, there is a sort of story of um, like the talented tent 
And the idea that you can excel your way out of doubt and oppression. And that if you just demonstrate your merit and that if you just do everything right. And my parents, that's why they instill these values of education, right? Because they thought, and I don't blame them because they did, right? Like they, they grew up in the age of like affirmative action and actual social and class mobility for Black people, which is not that it's not nearly the same anymore, but you know, they, they kind of grew up with this. They were able to do it. So there's also this sort of like bias because they were successful. There are plenty of people who use a book and aren't successful all, all the time, right? But they were actually successful middle class. And so for them, it's what made sense. It's like, this is, you know, when there's all of these stigmas and stereotypes attached to Blackness, um, being inarticulate, being uneducated, being unmotivated. And so the idea is if we can just show them that we're not the stereotype, they will recognize our humanity and our potential. And, so can I pause you there? Let yeah. me pause you there. You had to hustle to show your humanity. Yeah. Yeah, I think. Yeah. 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 And and I mean, I I don't diminish the Black experience, but I think for a lot of us from marginalized groups, it's the thing, right? Like we have to, there's a first, like we have to work to show us, show you our humanity. So like beyond our aptitude and abilities, like to get you to engage with us as people, sensitive people that you can see yourself in, right? Because there's a lot of things that happen when that like me bias is activated. And then there's a further of like, okay, and also I have to hustle more so you can see me as confident. Both are, you know, both are true. So for, for those listening that are in white bodies, listening to this part of the conversation right now, what, do you th- what is important uh, for those in white bodies to understand? You know, I think it's a, um, it's a reminder. And I, you know, I go into the, the book, Why I Hate the Unconscious Bias Framework. But I think, you know, a lot of this comes from bias. And I think it's just important to remember why we gravitate to who we gravitate to, why we see confidence, but not just confidence, potential where we see it, you know, because that's always a thing, right? It's like, um, we call it, call it performance attribution bias, wherein the success- Performance of, attribution bias. Yeah, performance attribution bias. The success huh. of um, black and brown people, and we, when this bias is activated, it's likely to be attributed to an accidental block or support in the group rather than an innate quality or potential. Um, whereas it's, and, and, and failure is reflective of innate quality and potential or lack thereof, where it's flipped for those from dominant racial groups. So particularly if you're thinking about white men, where it's like their success is a um, sign that they're, they have this innate potential or innately better. And their failure is accidental, right? So mm-hmm. I think, you know, that that is something we have to keep in mind. That, that, that's something that if I'm talking to white listeners, I would say, like, you just, that has been ingrained in us. Like, you know, um, so in your own work, in your own life, think about who you see as having potential and who you see as like you and who you see as successful and why. And this tees up my next question, uh, something else you said in, in your book, you wrote that nowhere is the issue of race more embedded than in the workforce. Mm -hmm. And you also noted, you believe it's almost impossible to uncouple the two. So you you started doing this already, but can you walk us through why this is true and what this means for leaders at all levels? Yeah. I mean, I kind of take a historical analysis here. Um, So first of all, you know, the U S and this is American centric, but I think it can be true elsewhere as well. The U.S. is kind of a Puritan country founded on this sort of Puritan work ethic, right? Wherein work already constitutes a part of our, our identity. So take race out of it. But, you know, for a very long time, this is more taboo now. When you meet people, the first question they ask you is, what do you do? And they use that question to deduce certain aspects of your identity. That's how closely our identity is tied to our work. The mm, second so layer true. to... Yeah. The second layer to that is that just historically, we've always said who can do what in terms of labor market participation, the kind of work they can do based on their identity. I don't think of slavery as just an economic um, or, or, or labor condition. It is um, a, like a so much deeper than that. It's a caste system. It's a social, political, whatever. But we said 
you perform this kind of labor and that drives how we think of you, Black people, right? African-American slave descendants. For Chinese people, um, when they immigrated into our country, um, you know, at first uh, Chinese folks were handing for gold during the gold rush, right? Not just building railroads or, or um, providing these ancillary, ancillary functions. But then what happened? They became too successful. So Chinese people actually banned from participating in the gold rush. And instead they were, they were forced into occupations that um, for a lot of people were considered feminized. Like, and I use quote in quotes because I don't think it's true, but restaurants, laundromats, that sort of thing. And at the same time, they, you know, there were these stereotypes adopted by the femininity of Ch Chinese men, right? So it's just like Chinese people can do this type of work. You know, for um, Mexicans, Mexican-Americans, the same can be said for agricultural work, right? So just like as long as we have had this country, people have said on the basis of your racial and ethnic identity, you can do this and you absolutely cannot do this. You are legally barred from doing this. And I should say this also includes work outside of traditional confines. So for example, with African-American women, you have to work outside of the home. You cannot be a homemaker. You have to work outside the home. Then we're going to criticize you for being poor mothers. But that, like, though, that was like legally mandated historically. So just think about how if work is a core part of our identity, and then a core function of our labor market is that our racial identity impacts which jobs we get. And by the way, we relate to our racial identity in very specific ways. It's just so, so deeply embedded. It's not a matter of going into an individual organization and being like, hey, like, oh yeah, I do circle up, sing kubaya, we're diverse, equitable, and inclusive, like job done. No, it's like, this is, this is how we have constructed our labor market, our culture of our, co our corporate cultures, our images of who leads, who gets successful, our metrics for how we ascertain aptitude, potential, skills, you know, and, and it's really hard to move outside of those frameworks into something new that actually accommodates us as a whole. Yeah, just taking in that, and I and I, I think those with privilege or those in white bias, it's it it is daunting to take in, and so many people are like, okay, what can I do, right? What <laughs> yeah. can I do? And 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 so you note that when you started your consulting company, Ready Set, you also noticed that the, when you got into that space, that the main approaches to solving the problems of racism and sexism were just through individual solutions yeah, yeah, that in, that yeah. address the unconscious bias, which you called BS to, um, because it made people, because you, you know, you recognize it made people feel like they could do something. What's something we could do? So we feel good about this thing. Um, so what is the trap about this approach to individual approaches and just focusing on unconscious bias and what is the better approach? So you don't think individual approaches per se are bad, right? Like I actually think we need individual approaches to sustain this work. But I think individual approaches that don't engage our discomfort or don't disrupt existing power dynamics and paradigms or don't require some level of um, risk or sacrifice are not enough to do what we need to do to make our workplaces more diverse, equitable and inclusive. Um, so th that's that's how I see it. But I think. I also think my ideas have changed somewhat in this work. So I think it's both, right? I think you need to have systemic change. You cannot have lasting, sustainable change without systemic Amen. change. And Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I think for a long time, historically, the DEI approaches were all about the individual and they over-indexed on that individual component without recognizing the system itself is broken. And I think that's an individual's up for failure because then they would do all the things that they were supposed to do and they would still see these biased outcomes. And they were like, okay, so like, there's nothing we can do. It kind of creates this apathy. So, you know, how to talk to your boss about ratings. My book, it really sort of is written to kind of position individuals to engage in systemic action and systemic work. Um, and I think that um, like I said, both are true. So I think as individuals, because we all come to this as individuals with individual power um, going up against societal problems and corporate power, we have to think about, okay, 
how do we collectively engage in systemic change? And then as that change is happening, how do we think about our own individual behaviors and the way we model the relationships that we create to put forth that individual sort of action, right? Um, and I'll just say, say this, I'm, minded, I'm reminded of the intersection between the individual and the collective. I think a really great example of that was what happened in um, June 2020, right? When we saw folks just protesting in mass, everybody made the individual decision. I'm going to get my sign. I'm going to go out in the streets and I'm going to link up with other people to make my voice heard that this thing is really, really wrong. I'm going to put my white body, because a lot of times it was white people that were doing this. Black people wouldn't do it for a while. White people coming out, putting their white bodies on the line and saying, no more. I'm showing up at the city council meeting. I am showing up in the streets. I'm showing up at the PTA meeting. I'm showing up at the school board meeting. And I'm saying, what are you going to do? We have to change these structures. I'm leveraging my privilege to do so. So like these were individual choices that collectively we're able to make a huge impact. And now we're seeing backlash as a result of it. I think they were so successful to get the crap out of a lot of people. And we're seeing some backlash around that. But I think it's an example of how both have to happen. It can't just be one person in their singular relationships. You know, people have to look to how they change their, their systems. But I think also every day we can think of the singular actions we can take to improve the lives of people we're in relationship with and to change those systems. Yeah, if you can get a little more granular around kind of like how the field has changed around DEI, where it just focused on unconscious bias yeah. to what you really, because I, I appreciate what you wrote in your book. So I'd love for you to share that with our listeners. Yeah, when I started Ready Set, you know, just every company that came to me wanted one of two things. They wanted um, recruiting and they wanted uh, unconscious bias training. And it was really hard for organizations to talk about systemic bias. Um, I say in my book, it was hard for the people coming to me to even say the word race, right? So I would have people say, oh, you know, we want, really want to be more diverse and inclusive. And I'd be like, amazing, here's the right place. And they'd be like, we want to talk about sexism and gender. That was always where they wanted to start. It was the, the, seemed like the easiest place, you know. We want to talk about homophobia and LGBTQIA plus inclusion. We want to talk about, um, you know, socioeconomic inclusion, age inclusion. And, you know, and they would just like sit with the thing, sit with the word. And I would not say a word because like you have to be able to say it for me to even come at right. You know what I mean? If you can't say it, we have like a lot of bigger problems. And, and acknowledging that race exists as much as people want that we've been taught that it's a bad thing. It's actually... Race is a social construct, but one which impacts a lot of people's lives very distinctly. So you have to be able to say it, right? So, yeah, eventually they would get to race and they would say race, but they would be like, well, you know, we don't want to be like affirmative action. We don't want to make two people too uncomfortable, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, first, you know, the Me Too movement happened. And so there was a sort of critical introspection of like, what do we mean by gender, the prevalence of harassment, et cetera. And there's also, I should say, I was, I would say it was a one bad apple approach in 2015, 2014. Like, this is all, like, we're actually kind of fundamentally pretty good. We just got like one or two bad apples. It's not a cultural problem. We just have to get everybody the education they need so we can all be aligned and on board, you know? Um, and, and then <laughs> me too. And we were like, oh, wait, this is disturbing. Like, there's a prevalence in terms of sexual harassment. All these women now are standing up and, oh, this is intersectional. So black women are like, coming to me too and be like, oh yeah, us, us too. Like we're getting it too. And, um, you know, I think that that was the first kind of like systemic, like wake up call. We've had a series, you know, um, I think another one was the election of Trump and whatever your political ideologies are, um, you know, for the purposes of this podcast, I'm not going to dig into that. But I think for a lot of people, that was a wake up call because Trump campaigned on xenophobia, campaign on racial identity politics. And People thought that he was a joke. People thought that would never resonate with the American people. We're all fundamentally good, except for those bad apples. And then he won, right? Didn't win the popular vote, but he won enough of the electorate to take office. You know, and then, you know, we uh, saw what happened, uh, the racial justice movement in 2020. And that, that was, what, and so there's these series of wake up calls that eventually like these companies got shaken out of their place of naivete and, and they had to acknowledge that these 
problems were bigger than just individuals. They were systemic. In some ways, these, as, these, these people as companies were complicit. There was real societal harm being caused. And, um, you know, a lot of stuff was being swept under the rug. And it wasn't, and it also wasn't DEI. It was just kind of this thing on the side that, like, was an add-on. It was like, oh, you know, yeah. people are watching this George Floyd video at work. Oh, my God, people are coming to work traumatized. Okay. Um, you know, or our product is, like, really hurting people or, or our product is radicalizing a whole segment of the population. You know, if they had all of these, like, moments of waking up and being, you know, being shaken out of that comfortable paradigm, you know, and yeah, in June of 2020, people were like calling me like, I got to tackle white supremacy. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa there, Bucko. <laughs> Yesterday, you were like... Couldn't say race. <laughs> you could say racism. You know, we make people uncomfortable. Yeah, and I'm glad, right? I'm glad that we are acknowledging all of the different kinds of people that exist in this world and not defaulting to paradigms of categorization that have white supremacy underneath them. But, you know, I think like that, the change has been quick. It's been drastic. It's been good to see. Well, but you you touched on a couple of times the discomfort piece, and I, I I've been really hooked by the legislation that's going on right now in Florida that's moving through the state house. That like it could be against the law to teach something that might make someone uncomfortable, right. and so right. there is that kind of piece going on of just the backlash against discomfort and the backlash against you know, how you see yourself versus just owning this. And and so some of that, you, you unpacked a lot of some of this nuance in your book around words, but you also noted in your book how those words have been misused yeah. and are hindering important conversations about race at work. So I'd love for you to walk us through what intersectionality is and why this lens is so important. Yeah. So I think, yeah, and there, there are a couple of things embedded in that conversation. I want to get to each of those. I'll start with the definition Please. of intersectionality and then this phenomenon that we have about co-opting words. And if we have time, yes. I'll talk about the, the role that, that, that white comfort and backlash kind of plays in this, in this work. So starting with intersectionality, um, the term intersectionality was uh, coined by Professor Kimberly Crenshaw to describe a situation of of women uh, in this particular case, it was a GM Motors case. In that case, the, these black women were alleging discrimination at the plant in which they worked. They had been um, laid off on the basis of tenure, but functionally they could have they could have only been hired like one or two years before this round of layoffs. So they sued, alleging discrimination. And the facts of the case were that. White women worked in office and administrative roles in front of house role. Black men worked in manufacturing uh, for GM. GM. So the judge heard that and said, okay, there's no basis for discrimination, right? Uh, GM hires uh, white women, GM hires women, GM hires black people. So we can't, there's no particular need here. And what that case so beautifully illustrates is that because of these overlapping marginalizations, the marginalization of black blackness, which barred women from working in the front office, and the marginalization of gender, which pre prevented them from being hired onto the factory floor, these women were functionally excluded and discriminated against in finding work for this company. So, so, so. Kimberly Crenshaw coined the term intersectionality to describe those overlapping marginalizations. So anytime we talk about a particular person, um, and it's not just uh, race and gender, it could be race and disability status. It could be disability status and sexuality. It could be age and sexuality, age and, you know, it could be uh, any combination of things. But as soon as we talk about overlapping marginalizations, not just aspects of our identity, which I think when people misuse the term intersectionality, they, they think about identity as a whole, which we all have identities, right? But the important part is like, which results in marginalization. The overlapping marginalizations are what contribute to intersectionality. So that's what intersectionality means. Now, let's talk a little bit about language and how that gets co-opted. Um, I use the example of woke in my book, um, you know, Woke is like a really old term. Like it comes from the phrase stay woke, which is like 
thought to be derived from, I think, a Martin Luther King speech was around be aware and awaken to the revolution that's happening around you, right? And, and able to participate. And, um, you know, it gained resurgence during the Black Lives Matter movement. And eventually, conservatives um, uh, latched onto the phrase as a an, an insult, right? It's something that's bad. We don't want any more woke politics, politics of wokeness. I think we who actually hold these values are really bad at reclaiming our language. So we just kind of like went into that paradigm of like, oh, it's too woke. And I think there can be something that's said for um, the exclusionary standards, politics, and practices of progressive movements. But I don't think we have to use, when somebody co-ops language, we don't have to go into that paradigm and then work within the opposition's paradigm. Another example that happened right as I was writing the book is critical race theory. So as I said before, I graduated from Harvard Law School, where they did not really teach critical race theory. <laughs> well, you know, like for a while, even while I was there, um, and I did not have a full understanding of what critical race theory was until recently, because it's a body of legal and policy scholarship that's really advanced. However, politicians have latched onto this idea of critical race theory. As something that's being taught to elementary and preschool students, like, oh, I have, I'm a mom. I know my kid is not learning critical race theory. We're, we're really struggling with just like the basics over here, right? So like, but being something that's being taught to kids to turn them against the U.S. And this is insidious in a few ways. Number one, it, it, um, it devalues critical race theory. I don't think critical race theory is bad. I actually think it's a great framework to understand American history. And it's one that really equips us well to not be bamboozled and hoodwinked when people talk about institutions, their approaches to policy and the level of protection that we as Americans have, right? It's a great framework uh, for, for someone who wants to approach any aspect of policy as a, as a critical thinker. But I also think it becomes a sort of scare thing. And then because nobody really knows what it is, they sweep everything in underneath it, right? And that's what we're seeing now is like, wait, only, you know, I just did a presentation of, about this. There's so many now book bans taking place, but only if you actually mention critical race theory in the legislation, because if you define it, then you realize like nobody else is doing it. So what they say is we're fighting critical race theory as they're talking about the legislation. Then in the legislation itself, it says anything that talks about America's inherently racist or talking about racism as a system or the values of inclusion or, you know, privilege. These are actually things that aren't critical race theory. They're basic facts, historical facts that they want to exclude from instruction. Right. So teaching about systemic racism is not teaching critical race theory. It is teaching American history, though. And if you want American history you know, taught in a certain way, you don't say we're going to ban teaching systemic racism, never going to get that passed. Say we're going to ban teaching critical race theory. And then systemic racism becomes critical race theory, right? So, I mean, that's another way that we've sort of seen, you know, the language of our movements being co-opted. I'm in a place now where I just refuse to accept that. Like, I'm going to keep saying critical race theory, it's good. It's good. Your kids should learn it. It's not a bad thing. And it's, you know, you're being manipulated if you think that that it is. Um, but I think for a lot of us, there is a pressure then to say, oh, no, 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 that's not what we meant. That's not what we want. We would never teach your kids critical race theory, right? And it's like, no, I'm going to come in and teach your kids critical race Like, you know what I mean? So I think we just have to be really mindful of, of that. To the last part of your question around white comfort, I think part of this book, what I say in the book, I have a whole chapter devoted to backlash, I think we as advocates do ourselves a disservice when we don't anticipate and expect that people will respond negatively to our work and push back against it. Um, and, and, you know, there's a, the Martin Luther King Jr. quote, which I, I, I talk about, which is the, the moral arc of history, you know, is long, but it bends towards justice. And I say, that's not actually, I don't agree with that quote. I'd love the work of Martin Luther King, but I don't think that's true. I think when we think about our history as a country, it's actually been a tug of war. And, you know, what I use to sort of, as a reference point, is Reconstruction, Radical Reconstruction. And how post-slavery, you know, it's kind of like, we're kind of taught like gradually Black people, had a, there's slavery, and then there's Jim Crow, and then they finally fought their way into the Senate. No, but what actually happened was there's slavery. Slavery was outlawed. You had a period of Reconstruction 
the latter of which was actually really radical and you had this emergent huge base of black political power more people in the senate that hadn't been have been in modern history and then because they saw the potential for that political social and economic power southern states enacted jim crow crow laws and as part of the southern compromise we said okay we'll accept those laws and those laws pushed back all that progress and it took us a century and a half to get back to even close to the place that we were it's not it's not a moral arc it's not a smooth journey it was a push and pull we got gains and they were taken away and that's what we're seeing now we get gains and they're taken away and so i think as advocates we have to gird ourselves for that eventuality that Winning is not the, the the end point. It's not the last step. We then have to protect our gains because people who see our wins as their losses are go- going to try to rip them back. So I'm I'm really the the image of the tug of war is really landing. It, that really feels so true. And and especially and I'm thinking about how you wrote about you wrote a lot about power in your book yeah. too. Um, but but also like social location and social power. Those two terms, I I, I reread those sections a couple of times. Walk us through what these are, especially in light of what you just shared and why they're important to understand when initiating our conversations about race at work. Yeah, so I say in the book, and then I guess I should say that in the book, I tried to create a framework for people to think about these conversations strategically you know, um, because like it requires strategy. Um, we've kind of been taught, trained to think of that we like innately can do this stuff. And there's like no st- strategy behind it. And like the people who make things happen are individuals that just innately had these charismatic, eloquent qualities. And that's not true. So I, you know, when I talk about that strategy, one of the first things that I advocate for people to do is like, know who you are and what position you occupy, what strengths you can leverage, and you know what weaknesses you might have to overcome. So when it comes to social location, I say first, let's start with your identity, right? Like who are you socially? Mm-hmm. How do you show up to this work? You know, I identify as a black queer woman who is middle class, educated, um, and who's in a marriage with a cis white man. All these things are important. They're all social signifiers, right? So not visibly queer, right? Like I could pass straight passing. Um, I'm middle class and I have access to certain social networks and economic resources that a lot of black people don't. Um, and that I was able to build up with that. I didn't start, you know, from the place that a lot of people who share my identity do. And I'm a woman and I'm a cisgendered woman as well, which creates some openings for me and it closes some doors, right? So, but I, it's important for me to know this and know how I show up in a conversation. Because like, for example, when I first started writing set, I would go into these meetings with executives who hired me, hired my company. Like my face is on the website. It's like CEO, you can't see it in the thing, but I'm putting a frame around my face to show that it was on the website. And um, uh, <laughs> I would get into a room and even though they had paid me to have these conversations, they would look at my male colleague or my white female colleague and they would talk to them. You know, and I, that was because they weren't used to seeing a Black woman in power, listening to a Black woman, engaging with a Black woman at that level. And I say in my book, like, I could have been, like, really offended by that. I was emotionally. But I was also like, let's just be strategic. That's who you want to listen to. Yo, you can listen to them all day. That's who you hear the message from. Now I know who to send as a messenger. Okay? You know, and I, I say this to um, people who are engaged in this work, because I think something that you have to do, I'm going to get to this, I'm getting to the social location now, is you have to understand your social identity. And then you have to understand where you're situated in an organization and how that social identity relates to your positionality, right? Like, so, you know, are you someone who, because of your position, you're in a position of power, you may be a person of color, but you're still more likely to have to act with certain individuals. How How are you thinking about that? Um, or are you a person who may be earlier on in their career? Also, you're also marginalized. Also, you're a woman. You know, like it may be a lot harder for you to have your voice heard. So like, just think about like how you're situated and how that impacts what you see and how people see you. And then when it comes to power, I really, really, really encourage people to move away from binary ways of thinking about power, which fundamentally in my mind are like no longer 
as relevant. We are trained to think we either have power or we don't. And power is this mysterious force that like you don't quite understand it's intangible, blah, 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 blah. And I actually think that, and there's a theory, I talk about the theory of social power. So it's not blind thinking, it's the people who made up this theory, you know, and they didn't just make it up out of the air, but you know, the researchers who developed this theory, like there are different sources of power and we all have access to some of these sources, right? So yes, there's the legitimate power hierarchies we're used to thinking of. There's also social power, social capital, right? There's also the power of information what access to information you have, what you don't, what you can share. You know, there's also the power of being considered an expert in some way. And so like I go through all these different, there's six bases of power. I go through all six in the book that I basically say, don't think about like the if you have power question. Think about which one of these you have, how you're going to leverage it, which you don't, and which you can get your friends to leverage because this is also collective. This work is not just about mm-hmm. using individual, it's about, it's about the power of a collective. So that's like what... I, I say this because you bring this knowledge into the conversation you have, right? This, this, this affects who you talk to, the technique that you use in talking to them, how you leverage your community when you're having these conversations. Like all of these things can impact the strategic ways which you approach culture change as uh, an individual and ideally, you know, as part of a collective. Thank you for that. As it actually was, it's really hopeful. Like if you're like, what do I do? You give so many tangible ways to look at how to make an impact. And it's so, it starts with understanding our social identity, our social location and social power and being strategic, as you said, in how you use those. And there's a lot of agency in that. So I really appreciate you walking us through that. I, I want to shift briefly because you, you mentioned, you know, you're a CEO, you started your own company, <laughs> Ready, Set. And, and I just would love for you to talk, what are the biggest challenges you're facing running your own company right now? You know, I think it's always, there are always challenges you face as a woman of color who's a leader. Um, some of them are expected, some of them aren't. I think as a black, a dark-skinned black woman CEO, I will say that I don't fit into a lot of people's mental frameworks when they think of what a person power looks like and what a woman in power looks like. So. There's a friction that happens just by nature of me being me. But I don't, I mean, I'm also kind of like, I don't know. I like, I like uh, being a little bit different in that way. I like agitating that, in that way. And I'm at a point in my life, my career, my evolution where I'm just going to show up as myself. If you like it, great. Let's do great business together. If you don't, I'm glad that you weeded yourself out, right? So there's that, my identity. I think there's also just like, and, you know, I, I talk to my team about this a lot. I'm going to get like really tactical as a leader. I lead a DEI services and to a certain extent product company. Our services, in my mind, are critical to the way that organizations function, society functions. Essentially, I call it future-proofing your organization. If you think about the great resignation, how many people are leaving? If you think about the expectations of Gen Z, if you think about how you operate an effective, people-driven, human capital, I hate the word human capital, but that's what business people understand, driven organization in an a unstable social, political, economic time, you have to understand how to show up for your people and how to create an environment for everyone in your organization to flourish. If you can't do it, you're going to fail. That is just hands down. 21st century forecast, that's, that's it. This country is only getting more diverse. The you know, situations we're dealing with are only getting more acute. We literally are dealing with life and death of COVID. So, you know, you can't deal with that. Like your, your business is not, is, not, is not made for the future. And, you know, my goal is really moving us as a team through that De- devaluation. I don't know what the word is, but through that and also acknowledging that the level of work it takes to do this right is unlike anything I think that um, other people in services spaces think about, right? People show up to our work as their full selves because that's the only way you can help somebody else do it, right? They are emotionally invested. And a lot of times this is like their life's work, right? And um, you know, we as a firm struggle to get that recognized and seen 
all the times in the way that it needs to be and to get it valued. So as a leader, a business leader who's at a company that's scaling rapidly, I always think about that. You know, I always think about how do I get these customers to value what we're, they're doing the same way they value their lawyer, heck, their HR consultant. Mackenzie doesn't know what it's doing. Sorry, Mackenzie. They value Mackenzie. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, how do we? <laughs> no shame. <laughs> Mackenzie, <laughs> you're great. Um, but how do we think about getting us to be valued in that same way? Um, because only then can we do what we need to do for our clients and for our, our, ourselves. So I think that for me, that's been, the, that's the focus. That's the focus of my, um, you know, my work uh, now and what I feel like I need to do to show up for my team. Um, and it's a challenge because they're fundamentally saying value the thing you've always seen valued. Mm. You know, even though they were difficulties that were planted to see how those burdens have turned into your life's work um, and what you're doing. It is pretty cool to see that um, this book also became a bit of a time capsule for you personally. Um, at the end of the book, you noted all of you experienced personally, and then also collectively what was going on in our culture while you're writing this book. What are some of the parallel experiences you had while yeah. writing this book? Um, it was a journey for me, but, you know, I signed the book deal when I was pregnant. And, you know, I was about five months pregnant, six months pregnant at the time. And I remember when I was pregnant. I was so scared. Like this is before COVID, you know, I was so scared. And then like George Floyd happened and like, I'm already trying to inflate myself from the trauma, having COVID and being isolated and all of that stuff. And, um, you know, people started marching and, and the Black Lives Matter movement happened. And um, at the same time, I had to go on bed rest. My, Right around the time I was five to six pregnant, my pelvis started to separate under the weight of my baby. Oh my so goodness. It was really, really painful. And I just remember this moment, it had to be June, where and they were like, uh, you know, the phone just didn't stop ringing, didn't stop ringing for any So they were like, you can't go on maternity leave yet. I can't. I'm bedridden, dude. Like, what do you want from me at this point? Like, I just want to have a healthy baby and live through it. And, um, but there was also this like, this is the moment. Right. You wanted everybody to listen the moment. Right. And I remember I wrote the book proposal. I wrote through the pain and then I interviewing and then I started writing the chapters and then I popped this baby out. And at the same time, my dad he got diagnosed with stage four lymphoma. So all that's happening during pregnancy, dad decided with lymphoma. Miraculously, he recovers. Baby's born. We leave where I was living because of wildfires and we relocate suddenly. Um, cause I, I have asthma, the baby could not breathe and, you know, we're like, we just can't stay here for at least for now. And then, um, uh, right around December, my sister who had taken care of my dad while I was, she, he was sick. Um, she died two weeks before Christmas. And, uh, I remember watching them bury her and like the connection getting interrupted, not being able to the funeral service, but never saying goodbye, you know, um, <laughs> So just writing through that and at times trying to, you know, use the pain as fuel, but also acknowledging like pain, that kind of pain should never have to be worked through in the way that I'm working through it. Um, and I shouldn't, you know, I talk, I say this in my talk, a lot of times when you're writing the black person about blackness, it's a, you open up a wound, expose yourself, you expose your trauma and re-traumatize yourself. Then you kind of have to find healing, find closure, close that wound up, and then open the new, open the new one. So I'm doing that across the opening and closing as, you know, all the stuff that's happening in the outside world. Um, so it's a lot. And it's not, and that's not unique to me. Like the black people that you ask to show up in this work are doing that every day. So I just want to ask some quick fire questions. Thank you for sharing yeah, that. Yeah. And, and I'm so glad that your book is out in the world. Um, and that's, that's a lot. It'll be like a, a again, a, a time capsule for you. So I want to just wrap with some quick okay, fire questions. Okay, what are you reading? What are you reading right now? Oh God, what am I reading right now? I capital ideology that's been sitting on my desk for like forever. Um, but I'm slowly parsing my way through it. But I'm going to be honest with you, a lot of times at the end of the day, all I want to do is watch 90 Day Fiance. So 
Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes, most of the time, the vast majority of time, I watch My Fiance, and I'm also reading The Montessori Child, Raising the Montessori Child, because my kid is there we a go. kid, and I want to season of life amateur too much yes <laughs> what song are you playing on repeat oh we don't talk about bruno <laughs> all day <laughs> we don't talk about bruno. so good so yeah. good favorite 80s movie or anything 80s pop culture coming to america starring eddie murphy and arsenio <laughs> hall and the seminal roles as yes. african Dead. i love that movie so good <laughs> so good what is your what is your mantra right now Besides, we don't talk about Bruno just because it's in my head. Um, practice what you preach, I think. So there's a lot of advice for advocates and staff in the book. And for me, it's like, you should also take care of yourself while on and take a nap. So try to do that. There we go. Trying to practice self-care and taking care of myself. Take care of yourself. What's an unpopular opinion you hold? I think my emphasis on white backlash as a function, as a part of American history, I think ruffle some people the wrong way also my feelings about unconscious bias training (laughs) (laughs) absolutely and who or what inspires you to be a better leader and human okay um who inspires me i think my my mom and my grandma because they never got the uh this chance so i'm gonna talk i'm gonna shout out my village starting with my mama (laughs) wonderful well, Yvonne, thank you for your time today. It was a gift to me, and I know it will be to so many who listen to this conversation. And please, everyone listening, go get this book. It is important. We'll put it in all of our links and show notes. But thank you for showing up um, here today thank and with all that me. you do. It's been an honor. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Silence in the presence of injustice often shows up to protect your power and your reputation. So speaking up when you're witnessing a wrongdoing, especially around race, can kick into action a lot of powerful protectors. Overanalyzing, whether it's your place to say anything at all, or worrying about saying the wrong thing, or fearing backlash, or being misunderstood. Yet staying silent supports the status quo. And staying silent signals you're in agreement with what happened, even if that's not true. And our silence does not really keep us safe, but only perpetuates harm to everyone involved. So developing a plan of intentional and aligned action will help the protectors of overthinking and worry relax and give you some space so you can take meaningful actions. And today, Wyvon walked us through a few of the many actionable steps and practices she details in her book, How to Talk to Your Boss About Race. She teaches us how to do the work knowing backlash and defensiveness will happen with ways we can prepare in order to keep the conversation going. And Yvonne reminded us to focus on and prepare for the long game as we seek changes, which can be hard for sure. So as you reflect on this conversation with Yvonne, what gets in the way of you speaking up when you see or experience wrongdoing? What support do you need so you can be a better anti-racist ally? Is there a conversation you need to have with someone about race instead of staying silent? If you avoid the discomfort of these conversations around race and other forms of discrimination and bias, you may miss out on a chance to deepen the conversation and make much needed change. And as Kelly Deals recently wrote in her weekly email, critique and conflict can be generative, but this requires work on your end. When you do the work to increase your capacity for vulnerability and discomfort, it prepares you and helps you navigate the inevitable landmines, defensiveness, and pushback that comes up with talking about race. And this is the work of an unburdened leader. Leading is hard. Leading is also controversial as you navigate staying aligned to your values, your mission, and your boundaries. Navigating the inevitable controversy can challenge your confidence, clarity, and calm. You don't mind making the hard decisions, but sometimes the stakes seem higher and can bring up echoes of old doubts and insecurities during times when you need to feel rock solid on your plan and action. Finding a coach who gets the nuances of your business and leading in our complex and polarized world can help you identify the blocks that keep you playing it safe and small and staying silent. 
Leading today is not a fancy title or fluffy bragging rights. It is brave and bold work to stay the course when the future is so unknown and the doubts and pains from the past keep showing up to shake things up. Internal emotional practices and systemic strategies are needed to keep the protector of cynicism at bay and foster a hope that is actionable and aligned. When the stakes are high and you don't want to lose focus, when you not want to navigate inevitable conflict between your ears and with those you lead, would you want to speak up and speak out and not stay silent? And when time is of the essence and you want to make hard decisions with confidence and clarity, then unburdened leader coaching is for you and where you deepen the capacity to tolerate the vulnerability of change, innovation, and doing things differently than the status quo. To start your unburdened leader coaching process with me, go to www.rebeccaching.com and book a free connection call. I can't wait to hear from you. Thank you so much for joining this episode of the Unburdened Leader. You can sign up for the weekly Unburdened Leader email, find this episode, show notes, and free Unburdened Leader resources along with ways to work with me at www.rebeccaching.com. 